Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support this podcast, sign up to my Patreon site and each week you'll receive an exclusive video which is filmed here at my home in Stirling uh, and features a mix of history, comment and current affairs. On my site there's a whole archive of films to watch. Uh, There's one on the history of pandemics, which is topical obviously. Another on new humans. We're still discovering variations on the theme of what it is to be human. New money and old clothes. Uh, There's a piece about the warriors of Sparta, who inspired the film 300. Uh, There's another about the Battle of Britain, another about Vikings. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. To get your hands on all these films, go to patreon.com and search for Neil Oliver, and I'll look forward to seeing you there. Okay, that's the news about my Patreon site. Here comes this week's podcast. Cue the music. They looked up from the ship and they could see that the lid of Thomas Griffith's coffin had been smashed by weather. And they could see his body and his arm was out and it seemed to be beckoning to them because it was, his dead arm was blowing in the wind. In this episode, we're casting our eyes over the rugged British Isles, a collection of storm-swept rocks. Home to an island race. To survive and thrive, its people have depended on a mastery of the world's seaways and protection around our own treacherous coasts. Keeping watch through history, a courageous group of workers have faced profound isolation and great danger. Sentinels and beacons of hope in the wildest of weathers. Steadfast folk with the determination and bravery to protect lives at sea. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we saw one of your heroes, Admiral Nelson, change the course of history as he sailed into action at the Battle of Trafalgar. Where are we this week? Well, Paul, we're going from a great admiral, uh, whose job it was to sink ships, enemy ships, to the brave souls stationed in lighthouses around the British Isles, who were in the business of keeping them afloat. 
Separated from the mainland and often lashed by high storms and perilous weather, this week we're on Small's Lighthouse off the Pembrokeshire coast. This week, Paul, we're in one of the places that I regard as amongst the most unforgettable locations I've ever personally visited in my life. It's the Small's Lighthouse. It sits on a reef of rock out in the middle of the open sea, so 20 miles off the coast of Pembrokeshire in South Wales. And I had the occasion, the opportunity to spend the night there while I was filming the BBC television series Coast. We flew out in a helicopter. I'll never forget anything about it. I think it was early enough in making Coast. I think it's probably the first time I had ever been in a helicopter as well. Have you ever been in a helicopter? I have been in a few. Of course you have. Yeah, yeah we've, we've been in them together now when I come <laughs> to think about it. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wouldn't have been my first time, but it was still a real novelty. And I remember we, we took off from some airport in South Wales and off we went over the open sea. And then I remember Small's Lighthouse appearing, you know, on the horizon at such a distance that it looked kind of like a golf tee. You know that shape? The classic lighthouse has that kind of oak tree trunk shape, you know, that sort of flares at the bottom and narrows at the waist and then gets wider again at the top. And then we had to land, we landed on the, because you couldn't get a boat to to the Small's Lighthouse. You had to land on the helipad on the top. So there was a helipad on top of the, the lighthouse. And because it's too dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. The reef of rock that it's on disappears at high tide. At high tide, all you can see is the lighthouse. And then at low tide, you can see the black basalt rock that it sits on. So we, you know, we landed on top of this thing. All the lighthouses are automated now. There are no lighthouse keepers. Uh, they were, the last of them was, was automated in 1998. And so we had to take our own food. Uh, everything we needed, we had to take sleeping bags and everything because we were going to have to spend the night. And we, we spent the night to tell the story that I'll get to when we properly get into the meat of, of the Smalls Lighthouse love letter. But suffice it to say, we, we did our filming and, and spent the night and spending the night in a lighthouse 20 miles out into the open sea was just, it was just remarkable. It was just remarkable. But we'll get, we'll get to it. We'll get to an account of that as we proceed. If you grow up in Britain, you see lighthouses everywhere. You know, they're, they're a common sight around the coastline on this rocky headland, on this clifftop, whatever. You know, you see them. You know, they've got distinctive markings and paint jobs on them. Some of them look like barber's poles, you know, the kind of candy stripe on them. They're, they're, so, they're so evocative. And you'd be forgiven for thinking that every country's the same, but it's a fact that Britain is particularly and uniquely blessed with lighthouses. Other countries have followed our lead, but we were at it very early on. And it's all tied up with that way in which we see ourselves as an island race. You know, Winston Churchill famously said, we are an island race, the Brits. And so we are. And just recently we've been talking about Nelson and the freedom of the ocean. But because we're an archipelago, a set of islands, we've always been dependent on boats from the beginning for thousands of years. And because we've always depended on boats to come and go to get our trade, to get a lot of our food, and, and before the advent of, of flight, we depended on boats to get everywhere. And for that reason, we were at the mercy of the open sea. And the coastline, like any coastline, it's dangerous. There's sunken reefs, there's rocks, there's rocky headlands, and then when there's bad weather, anyway, you get, you know, ships get driven towards the, the shallow water, and it, it, there's all manner of dangers. 
And in point of fact, it was in the time of Henry VIII that people first began addressing the problem of those in peril on the sea, if you like. And it was in 1514, Henry VIII granted a royal charter in the name of the Master, Wardens and Assistants of the Guild, Fraternity or Brotherhood of the Most Glorious and Undivided Trinity and of St Clement in the parish of Detford Strond in the county of Kent. <laughs> there's, a, there's a handle. So it was a, it was a body, a, a group of people dedicated to looking after ships moving up down the Thames. They were trying to standardise behaviour. People weren't always keeping to the right side of the river and whatever, and there were all sorts of incidents and accidents. And after a, a long period of appeals to the king, he set up this organisation. And the first person in charge of it was a guy called Thomas Spert, who was actually master of the Mary Rose, that ship that sank and then was raised in our lifetime, in our childhood. Do you remember watching on the telly when they, the raising of the Mary Rose, which is now on display? Well, he was the master of the Mary Rose while, while the ship was still afloat. And that organisation is now known in England as Trinity House. Because it grew and evolved, it became the body that looked after the lighthouses. In 1566, Henry's daughter, who was Queen Elizabeth I, of course, she extended the duties and role of the Brotherhood and made them responsible for, and I quote, beacons, marks and signs for the sea whereby the dangers may be avoided. So, from the time of Queen Elizabeth I, there have been lights deliberately installed and maintained to keep shipping safe. And gradually they spread as people identified hazards to shipping. You know, they tried to put lights in the vicinity of as many as possible so that ships could see and could be kept safe. But in Scotland, the same job is provided by the Northern Lighthouse Trust. And that wasn't actually formed until 1786. But it does the same job. You can see the headquarters of the Northern Lighthouse Trust in, uh, I'm pretty sure it's in George Street in Edinburgh, and there's a wee lighthouse, is the sign, <laughs> above, the, above the front door. If, it, if it's not there now, it always used to be. There was a wee lighthouse with a wee light on it. It was very distinctive. So would people throughout history have been protecting their shipping? But this is the first formalisation of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you remember when we did a love letter from Arbroath Abbey, and we talked about the round O, the big window, which once upon a time was a stained glass window, but now it's just a big empty circular socket open to the weather. And the abbot there was aware of the danger that was posed by the Bell Rock, which is a, a reef of rock about 12 miles off the coast of Arbroath. And he had a brazier, a fire kept burning in the round O, so that ships could, maybe if the weather was clear enough, they might catch a glimpse of it. And it was, he installed it there, it was there to warn them. It was there to warn shipping. So there have always been those who have understood the danger and have taken steps to do what they could. But by the time of Henry VIII and then Elizabeth I, from then on, there was a concerted effort to deal with it and, and make it an organised effort, a coordinated effort to keep the hazards lit so that people could navigate around them. And then if you grow up in Scotland, you're aware of the Lighthouse Stevenson's, which was the family that built the iconic lighthouses that established the engineering and the technology of building those... Up until that point, you know, they're all manner of lighthouses. 
but the Lighthouse Stevensons around Scotland standardised the look and the shape and it, and it spread like a rash. The patriarch of the family was, was Robert Stevenson and then it was his, his sons and then his grandsons that really, that really finessed the art. And the kind of lighthouses everyone's familiar with, with that tree trunk shape, that elegant sweeping shape, they were composed of three-dimensional granite blocks that, that fitted together like three-dimensional jigsaw pieces. And so they clunked and fitted together and then they were indestructible. They were so strong that even the wildest weather wouldn't break them. I mean, you'd need to hit them with a missile to damage these. You know, they'll last forever. Such was the genius. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson is connected to the same family. Obviously, he made his name writing Treasure Island and the rest, but he's part of that family as well. So they were, they were a talented and gifted lot. And so, as I say, if you grow up in Britain, you just think lighthouses are everywhere. Well, they are in Britain, but that was a British tradition. We got into that, and then the Lighthouse Stevensons, who are fascinating, a fascinating family. Uh, Bella Bathurst, an author, wrote a fantastic book, The Lighthouse Stevensons. And amongst other things, she pointed out that all the lighthouses are automated now. There are no, there are no lighthouse keepers. She identified lighthouse keeping as the first profession that's ever been made totally redundant. <laughs> They're gone now. When I was a boy growing up, there was a period in my teens where I wanted to be a lighthouse keeper. It was a proper fantasy of mine, but then I found out that really you had to be kind of ex-Navy or ex-Merchant Marine. That's who the lighthouse keepers were recruited from. They had all been men of the sea, and I realised that it was going to be difficult. You know, in order to become a lighthouse keeper, I was going to have to join the Royal Navy or something. And I, and I went off the idea at that point, but it, it was always a fantasy. And in, in actual fact, I'm a, I'm a patron of the Association of Lighthouse Keepers. That's the truth. Every month I receive a magazine, their magazine called Lamp, and I'm... I'm listed in the inside front page as a, as a patron of the Association of Lighthouse Keepers, which is a, a tag that I'm very proud of. And as a child, what was it that fired your imagination? I think it was the it was the it was the romance of it. You know, they're in remote locations generally. And I was fascinated by this idea of you know, like the lighthouse keepers' cottages that are clustered around them. And traditionally, there's a few lighthouse keepers on station at a time, again, for reasons that we'll come to in the, in the rest of this love letter. And they would sometimes be so remote that they would have to school and educate their own children. You know, they'd have wives in the cottages and they would grow their own food. And it, there, was just, there was just something idyllic about it. Just like the idea of being, you know, somewhere remote, out in the landscape, and spending my downtime writing poetry or something. It was all, just, <laughs> it was all just, it was all just a fantasy. Uh, but I was always, and I still am. And it, it's funny that I, you know, eventually, I, in the making of Coast, we visited a lot of lighthouses, and I, you know, I, I made plain the fact that I loved them and I always had, and it, it was for that reason that the Association of Lighthouse Keepers approached me and asked if I. <laughs> so, in a strange sort of a way. At least I became a patron of the association, even though there are no lighthouse keepers. Um, so that trip that I talked about, it was 2005. That's how long ago it was that we went out. And we went out to tell the remarkable story, the bit of history that unfolded at the Smalls Lighthouse. The lighthouse that's there today, it looks like your classic lighthouse. It was actually designed and built by an English engineer called James Douglas. By that time, they were, they were all following a pretty standard pattern. 
another contributor to that grand tradition was John Smeaton, who built the Eddystone Lighthouse, which is off the coast of Cornwall. And it was Smeaton's design that was picked up on by uh, Robert Stevenson. And he made it his own and finessed it and, and brought it to the peak of its useful application. The Smalls Lighthouse was actually automated in 1987, just as that whole tradition was coming to its end. And so, as I said, we arrived, landed by helicopter on the helipad, climbed down through a, a hatch in the helipad and got down into the lighthouse itself. And then the, I'll never forget when the helicopter took off and left us. We were so we were so alone. There's no way off. We were twenty miles out at sea, on a rock, um, and uh, we were with. Uh, the, apart from the film crew, so there was a, a director, a sound man, a cameraman, a runner, and an ex lighthouse keeper, whose job it now was to be part of the team that would go out and maintain these things. So you know, so they go, so they go around and they you know they make sure they're all right and they clean them and they put in new bulbs and all all the rest of it. All, the, all look after the electrics and make sure the things are functioning. And he had actually, in his younger days, he had spent time as a lighthouse keeper on the Smalls lighthouse. He took us all the way down to the door, going out onto the rock. And he explained how the doors were always set into the the leeward side of the prevailing wind. You know, so that even in heavy weather, the wind was sort of behind the door on the other side of the lighthouse. And he said it was very normal while being on the Smalls that you could have the door open and a wave would hit the back of the lighthouse and wrap around. But the water wouldn't come in. It would just be green. You'd be underwater and then, and then the wave would break and fall away. And then the next wave would come through and it would just shut and you'd be briefly underwater. And he said the galley, the kitchen, which we were in as well, because we used the, the kitchen space for cooking our food, which was like just below the, the light chamber. So right up at the top of this thing, hundreds of feet high. And he said it wasn't unusual, you know, to be standing at the kitchen sink, which was at the window, and for you to be suddenly underwater there. Because the, because the waves could be so big that they'd be the height of the tower. And the wave would just come right, and you'd be looking out at, at water. <laughs> right, and you're just, just below the light chamber. It's absolutely extraordinary. We got all set up to do our filming and it, it involved me going out onto the rock. We timed it. I went out at low tide when this reef of black rock was there, but it was barely above the level of the waves. And it was a relatively calm day, but I had to keep an eye on the runner who was up at a window and he was looking further out to sea because the lighthouse keeper that was with us had explained that if something big like an oil tanker sailed maybe even miles away, but sailed in the vicinity of the lighthouse, its wake would travel across the sea and its wave could submerge the rock. I had to keep turning and looking because he was going to watch and see if he could see a wave coming, at which point I was going to have to make a run for the lighthouse door. <laughs> but it didn't actually happen. So, so I mean, obviously I was down there, me and the cameraman were down doing our filming and I was doing my various pieces to camera. And what you can see set into sockets that were cut into the rock are the stumps of the original lighthouse. Because as I said, the one that's there now is Mark II. There was a Mark I lighthouse. The one that's there now was, was switched on in 1861. But back in 1776, right, there was an earlier lighthouse. This reef of rock, sticking up as it does, barely visible, was a real danger to shipping. And there had been a competition to come up with a design for a lighthouse. And the guy that won it was a musical instrument maker from Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, it's so bizarre. He was called Henry Whiteside. 
and he won the competition and so they built his they built his and it was you know that in, in the War of the Worlds you know what the Martian robot things they look like with their long spindly legs and then there's a sort of body at the top well that's what this thing looked like it was 70 feet high tree trunks basically like the mass of ships and they came together at the top and on top of that was a two story chamber the lower floor was living accommodation for the lighthouse keepers and the chamber above was where the light was it was an oil burning lamp now it sounds completely outlandish but it worked this lighthouse it survived the storms for more than 70 years you know so it looked bizarre and outlandish to our eyes but it did work but then, then came the fateful winter of 1800-1801. So the famous event which took place here happened in the original wooden lighthouse. Yeah, and as was the custom, there were two men, two lighthouse keepers on station, and their names were Thomas Howell and Thomas Griffith. And it was known to everyone that knew them that they were always fighting. Always arguing, they didn't get on well, and sometimes it would come to fisticuffs. And as it happened, during their month-long stint on the light, or just at the beginning of it, Griffith, Thomas Griffith, took ill and died. So now Thomas Howell is alone with a dead man, and he was paranoid, worried that people would think that there'd been another fight and he'd kill them. So while he might have wanted to dispose of the body, put it in the sea to get rid, he knew he had to keep it because he was going to have to show that he wasn't injured. You know, he hadn't hit him over the head with a candlestick or something. So he built a coffin and he put Thomas Griffith's body in it and sat out to wait for the end of his tour of duty when the rescue ship would come and offload him. And of course the body started to decay and the little living chamber started to smell of corruption. And he moved the body out onto the balcony. There was a sort of a balcony around the outside of the, his living quarters and, and he moved it out and stood it up. You know, just to get it out of the, just to get it out into the, into the open air. And then the weather set in and it was one of the worst winters on record. And the ship that should have been coming to get him couldn't come. So he was stuck there for weeks and then for months. It was two or three months before anyone was able to come and get him. And when the ship finally arrived, and it was coming in through weather that was still pretty bad, and they, they, they looked up from the ship and they could see that the lid of Thomas Griffith's coffin had been smashed by weather and they could see his body and his arm was out one of his arms was out and it seemed to be waving or sort of beckoning to them because it was, his dead arm was blowing in the wind and they landed and they got to Thomas Howell and Thomas Howell they said his hair had turned white and he was completely mad because of the months that he had spent alone with the decaying body of Thomas Griffith and that incident on Small's Lighthouse in 1800-1801 changed the protocols of lighthouses forever up until that point, it had been the drill that there'd be two guys together. But because of what happened to Howell and Griffith, they instituted a, a change and it was always a three-man crew. Because it meant that if something happened to one, there were two more to deal with it. And from that point on, until the automation of the lighthouses, lighthouses were always 
looked after by a three-man crew, and all of that was because of what happened on Small's lighthouse. And then subsequently, Henry Whiteside's timber lighthouse was replaced, came to the end of its natural life, and it was replaced in 1861 by the one that's there now. As I say, the time that I spent on Small's Lighthouse has stayed with me forever. I've never had an experience anything like it. When that helicopter chop, 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 disappeared, and, you know, we watched it go from the helipad, and we looked around us, and at the time it was high water, so you couldn't see the rocks. We were just on this pinnacle that seemed to be sticking up out of the sea, well, which it was. And there have been few occasions in my life when I've felt more isolated than on Small's Lighthouse. But you asked me why I wanted to be a lighthouse keeper. Now, it's because in later years, I came to the realisation that the presence of the lighthouses is something that is particularly British. That effort that was made really from the 16th century onwards, and certainly from the 18th century and up to the present day, that determination to keep lights burning in the dark, to keep people safe. I've already mentioned our Broth Abbey and the fire that was kept burning in the round O. And I've spoken in previous recent love letters about HMS Victory and Admiral Horatio Nelson and the freedom of the sea. We have, as British people, always had this intimate relationship with the, with the waters that surround our islands and the presence of the lighthouses, these lights in the dark, say something to me about what it has meant to be British. And of course, to this day, people are, are drawn to Britain, literally like moths to the flame. You know, the way of life that we have had in Britain has been a light in an often dark world. And as is demonstrated by the number of migrants and, and asylum seekers who are trying to get to Britain, and whether you like the fact that they're coming or not is, is neither here nor there. It's simply indicative of the extent to which Britain has and, and has been for the longest time a bright light. And it, it attracts people who want a safer place to be. And the lighthouses are emblematic of that. Wild Yorkshire Moors, tough, strong-willed survivors, a collection of young women whose brilliance would shape and change the world of literature, perfect prose laying bare the crippling social conventions of their day, the harsh realities of the local life, the desolate, bare beauty of the moors surrounding them, and their imaginations, stubborn genius and creativity that lit up the world. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. 
Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. And the finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.